on today's episode of the Real Foodology Podcast. Agriculture used to be the backbone of these rural economies. And there's so there's so many fewer farmers right now that it just doesn't exist. And a lot of farmers don't do business necessarily in their, their hometown like they used to 30 or 40 years ago where there was maybe a couple machinery dealers and a couple feed stores. And, you know, like when I was born, there were four different places in town to sell livestock. You know, now we... We don't even have a place to hardly sell if you're an independent producer to sell livestock because it's all gone to the way of the vertical integrators. Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Real Foodology Podcast. As always, I am your host, Courtney Swan, and today's guest is Zach Smith, and you may know him as the Stock Cropper. I had the pleasure of meeting Zach back in September when I was in Telluride for the Telluride Film Fest. I went to a panel that he and Michael Pollan were speaking on all about regenerative farming and promoting their new film, Fooding 2, which I don't believe is out yet. I think Zach said that it should be out in April, so definitely look out for Food Inc. 2. If you have not seen Food Inc. 1, I highly recommend going back and checking that out. That film came out, I should have looked this up, but it's it has to be at least like 15, 18, 20 years ago that it came out now. It was also a book, and it was one of the many documentaries back in that time that really lit a fire under my ass to want to make changes to our food industry and really just helped drive this passion that I have for helping others get healthier. Zach Smith's story is really cool. He grew up in a farming family. He is now a farmer himself. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode because we covered a lot of ground. What's very cool and unique about his story is that when he grew up, he was working as a crop advisor for uh, big agriculture companies on the conventional side. And what inspired him to move over to a regenerative practice was seeing the effects that this conventional approach had on our soil. He is very passionate about soil health and about regenerative farming. And he wanted to do things differently because of what he was seeing in this big agriculture model. So his story is really inspiring. We talk about a little bit about regenerative farming. We talk a lot about stock cropping, which is his company, which is absolutely fascinating. We also talk a lot about from the farmer's perspective, what it looks like to change your inputs from this conventional model to a more regenerative model. I asked him, does he really think that this is scalable? Is it possible to quote unquote, feed the world from a regenerative model? We also talk about the farm bill and how it affects us as consumers, also how it affects farmers and what we can do as consumers to drive these trends and also help these farmers get the funding they need in order to grow these healthier crops. So we cover a lot of ground. It was a absolutely fascinating episode. And Zach is a wealth of knowledge in all this because you know he's grown up his whole life doing this. And it was very, fascinating to hear from the farmer's standpoint. So I'm just so excited for you guys to listen to this episode. As always, if you could take a moment to rate and review the podcast, it means so much to me. It really helps this show grow. And I just want to say thank you for your support. I appreciate you guys a lot. Let's get into the episode. Knowing more about your metabolic health and how your body responds to specific foods is probably one of the most important things and insights that you can have into your health because our metabolic health is the foundation of our overall health. And what I'm speaking about specifically is using a CGM or a continuous glucose monitor. The one that I've been using is from this brand called Vary, and it's a great tool to find personalized insights on what works best for your body and truly quiet the diet trends. 
by pairing a CGM or a continuous glucose monitor with an easy to use app, in just 14 days, you can really understand how to break unhelpful habits and build new ones to improve your metabolic health through nutrition, exercise, sleep, and stress management. Since using Vary uh, CGM, I've learned so much about how different factors impact my body and my ability to keep my blood sugar stable. For example, adding really good high quality fats like butter, for example, or olive oil to carbohydrates, I've seen such a difference in the way that my body handles that glucose spike. And I really don't get as an extreme spike as I do when I just eat the carbs alone. Another thing that has really helped me a lot is eating greens before I have like a carbohydrate rich heavy meal. Little things like that have helped me see in real time, like, oh, when I eat this bread, if I don't have like almond butter with it, my blood glucose levels really spike. And then I feel it because I feel that crash. And then I feel that fatigue. Whereas when I can keep my blood sugar levels more stable, I'm not crashing and burning and feeling so fatigued after meals. It's really cool because when you have this insight, then you can start making little adjustments. And the adjustments that I've had to make have been so minimal and little, but have made such a huge impact on my overall health that it really... I consider it to be very invaluable information because it's giving you a glimpse into exactly what's going on into your body specifically. You're not just hearing from like an Instagram or a TikTok like, oh, you should eat this or you shouldn't do that. So if you also want to find the right foods and habits for your body while improving your health, give Vary a shot with our exclusive $30 off code, vsm Foodology. So put that in at checkout. Again, that's vsm Foodology at checkout when you go to very.co. So that's V-E-R-I dot C-O. You guys know I'm always on the lookout for ways to strengthen my immunity, especially more than ever right now as we're going into fall and winter. And on top of that, I've been traveling a ton. So I was really excited when I discovered Armra Colostrum. I've actually been taking Colostrum for a long time. It was something that my mom put me on years ago because of its immune defense properties. And when I discovered Armra, I was so excited because it's really good, high quality sourcing and it really works. Colostrum is the first nutrition that we receive in life and it contains all the essential nutrients that we need in order to thrive. Armra is a proprietary concentrate of bovine colostrum that harnesses these 200 plus living bioactive compounds to rebuild our immune system barriers and fuel cellular health for a host of research-backed benefits. This colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, it fortifies gut health, it activates hair growth. I have personally seen this. I've had a ton of new baby hair growth. Also activates skin radiance and it also helps power fitness performance and recovery. On the immunity piece, there was actually a study done that showed that colostrum is actually more effective than the flu vaccine, which is wild. Look it up if you don't believe me. There's science and research behind this. It's pretty profound. Armra fortifies gut health and ignites metabolism so it can help combat bloating and help you feel lighter. The colostrum naturally fortifies your entire gut wall system, replenishing your microbiome, repairing the gut wall architecture and blocking irritants that can trigger symptoms like bloating, constipation, and IBS. It also enhances nutrient, nutrient absorption, stabilizes blood sugar levels, and accelerates fat burning for a revved up metabolism pretty crazy, right? And as I said before, it can reactivate hair growth and help growing skin. It reduces inflammation, especially like puffiness in your face and neck, stimulates stem cells to produce collagen and increase elasticity for plumper skin. 
Now, the cool thing is we have worked out a special offer for you guys, my audience. Receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash realfoodology or enter realfoodology to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash realfoodology. Well, let's uh, let's dive into it, Zach. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. We actually met, just so the listeners know, when I was at Telluride Film Fest because you were there supporting the film that you were in, Food Inc. 2, which is a great film. Everyone definitely go check that out. And I was so excited to see you speaking on a panel and afterwards went up to you and was like, I'd love to have you come on the podcast and talk all about regenerative farming because this is something that you're practicing now. And you have a very unique lens, which I'm very excited to dive into, which is you came from the conventional side of things initially and saw what it was doing to our land. And so I really want to dive into that. So anyways, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So... Let's let's just start at the beginning. I mean, what what inspired you to get into farming in the first place, and what were you doing before you're doing what you're doing now? Uh, yeah, so I I grew up on a on a farm as a kid here in northern Iowa. Uh, my farm sits uh, for people trying to place it uh, basically directly between Min- uh, Minneapolis and Des Moines on the Iowa Minnesota border is where I'm, where I'm located. And uh, uh, I'm uh, I'm officially fifth generation uh, farmer. We settled in the 1890s here, and uh, you know it's kind of all uh, at least part of my family has ever known. And I'm uh, I'm the fifth and probably the last uh, generation of my family that settled here to farm because uh, I have two daughters and they have no interest in uh, in agriculture, um, which is which is fine by me uh, from what it's become, I think. And so um, so yeah, so I I grew up and I was the oldest of five kids. Um, I caught it early, the bug, and uh, uh, wanted to farm. There wasn't room for me, so I went off to because uh, my dad didn't have enough acres uh, to, to to have room for me to to come back and farm after high school. So I went to uh, college uh, and studied agronomy, and then came out and uh, essentially worked uh, in what a lot of people simply would just classify as a big agriculture for. Uh, the last like oh eighteen years, I suppose, and I was a what's called a certified crop advisor, and um, for the first part of my career, basically sold um, a lot of crop protection products, so herbicides, uh, fungicides, insecticides, and helped farmers, um, you know, manage the inputs on their operation, and um, and then I uh, eventually became. Um, Instead of an employee, became an employer, had my own seed uh, retail chemical fertility business. And, um, but the older that I got and how I kind of got to where I'm at now, I, I kind of saw the fallacy in what the, what the result of the big ag system has had, um, probably primarily on the land. That's probably my biggest passion is soil. Um, But then also secondarily, like, communities and what rural America has come, even compared to, you know, when I was a kid, you know, 40 years ago, I'm 44 now, but what I remember, like my town looking like when I was a little kid and the businesses and the people. And as I, I'm sitting in my sunroom today, I look out across my neighborhood, like the amount of farm acreages that aren't here anymore. Um, and it started really getting, getting me thinking about, uh, is this the only way it has to be? And so, uh, definitely have come from a, a convention. I understand, you know, why things are the way they are. Uh, and there's reasons and farmers in a lot of ways have been, uh, I don't want to, if, if trapped is the right word, but confined based off of policy. And um, a couple of years ago, I was uh, 
uh, brainstorm with a couple of buddies on a way to maybe break that narrative. And that's where this idea that uh, how we met called the stock cropper uh, kind of came about. And uh, so a couple of years ago, I I quit uh, my role within uh, Big Ag and now I'm just focusing on my my own farm operations. So I farm 1,200 acres of corn and soybeans um, in Iowa and then I'm working on trying to develop this alternative regenerative system at the same time. That's amazing. There's so much that you just said that I want to dive into. First and foremost, so you mentioned that you were a crop advisor before. I'm curious to know what what that kind of looks like because, you know, a lot of what I talk about on this podcast is what you just said is that so many of these farmers almost feel like trapped in this system because of the policies and because of the the power that big ag has on people. What did you see when you were in that role from that standpoint of like how these farmers were almost kind of stuck in this as you were this crop advisor and how how they weren't able to get out of this system? Well, I guess I should say this. You know, I don't know if most farmers would classify themselves as feeling trapped. Okay. Um, I, I think most... Uh, most see it as just a way of life and this is what we've always done and there's always been change and we've kind of gone gone with it. Um, there, are, there are, I would say, a smaller subset that are interested in change and then, uh, but those that remain, kind of the theme of the game is to just continue to get bigger uh, and get, getting bigger is how you survive in this business. And so, um, so there's, you know, there's, I mean, people are definitely aware, but as far as the number of folks that are like me that are trying to find a creative solution out. Uh, they're out there, but it's uh, it's definitely fewer than what what the mainstream is. So that seems to be one of the bigger issues is that there's not a lot of education around that there are better ways to do what than what we're doing right now. Because I know what I know about farming, and obviously I know very little, but I just know enough from watching documentaries and talking to people like you that the way that we're doing it conventionally right now, we're completely destroying the health of the soil. And ultimately the reason why we should be concerned about this is that we're only as healthy as our soil is because our food is only as healthy as the soil is. And then we're only as healthy as what our food is, you know, the food that we eat is, and it's becoming a main, it's a, becoming a really big problem. And what I see is there's this turning point right now of farmers going like you, like there's gotta be a better way. And they're, coming across this regenerative farming model and then finding that it's a really big, or I, I want to hear, is it, does it feel like a really big uphill battle when you discover this and you think like, God, now I have to completely change all my inputs? Yeah. Noel, it's, how do I say this? Um, producing things regeneratively is not uh, that big of a challenge. Like I feel in just a short couple of years, what we've come up with stock cropper is we truly, I think have, come up with this really creative, scalable, regenerative uh, way to produce things much more efficiently uh, in regards to being able to produce a lot, which you knew you need to do to uh, feed the world, um, but also something that's uh, much more environmentally friendly and then something that builds not only soil, but builds rural communities. And that's really, you know, kind of what I'm, what I'm really passionate about. Uh, the, the issue is... Uh, all of the things on the backside to get it through the food system. Uh, that is the hard part. That's the biggest challenge that I face. I feel like scaling up what I'm, what we've built is not really that difficult. It's all the support mechanisms, the processing, the stuff that we don't have access to anymore because of uh, the consolidation in the meat industry. And there's only three or four, you know, major processors left in the country. And 
that's been by design. And uh, so those are those are some of the, uh, in my opinion, at least with what I'm doing, some of the biggest limitations. So and what what are they? So you said like the processing, there's only like three or four. Is that does that mean for like conventional meat that there's only like three or four massive processors that all everyone sends their cows to? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Smithfield, Tyson, JBS. Um, Oh, and I'm forgetting one. one Is Purdue one, one, one of the big ones? Yeah, Purdue's, Purdue's a big okay. one too, correct, yeah. yeah. And what are some of the other limitations? I'm just curious, and I also, just so you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I really try to give my listener um, a, the full scope of what's happening right now because um, we need all, I feel like my perspective is we need all hands on deck and I hope to inspire people in in various ways, whether they're farming and ranching or, you know, they're a nutritionist or they're a doctor. Like, I just want people to understand the full scope of what's happening and the hardships because also like as a society, this is how we start to move change because people can start, you know, creating new ways around this and how we battle it. So what is the uphill battle on the, on the opposite side that you were saying, like outside of the processing plants? I think, you know, one of the things is... Uh, uh, you know, food will be more expensive if it's done uh, the way that I do it. You know, we've uh, <laughs> we've we've developed a cheap food policy for the last you know forty years, and um, it's it's cheap in sense what you buy at the grocery store. Some people may not think that these days with inflation, but still, as a percentage of you know uh, budgets of what a family has to spend on food compared to seventy five eighty years ago, it's uh, substantially cheaper. Um, but it has a cost, right? And you know, the little bit that I followed you, you you focus on a lot of what those costs are. And uh, um, you know, I see it uh, here locally. You look at how people look uh, in rural Iowa compared to pictures from you know 50, 60, 70 years ago. People were fit and in shape. They were physically active because uh, a lot of them were farmers, and there was a lot more physical work. You know, farming is not as physical as what uh, people like to romanticize. I mean, I I turn around in my climate controlled tractor and I hit a button and it steers itself back across the field automatically. So, uh, there's not a lot of calories burned, uh, in a yeah. day like that. So <laughs> pressing a button. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think, you know, I think that's one of the challenges too, is that getting people to understand that food is artificially cheap. You know, there's, there's things with, you know, uh, uh, you know, healthcare expenses from an unhealthy population. We've got soil loss and degradation. We have things like the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico where we're, you know, uh, we've got water quality issues, you know, where you're looking in states like Nebraska where the Ogallala Aquifer has got nitrate levels that are really, really concerning. These things keep, you know, coming up. And uh, so, uh, but there's a cost to farm differently. And that's the point I'm trying to make. And that will that will cause, uh, you know, if, if this is really going to scale, uh, you know, Consumers will have to understand that and buy into the fact that this is uh, this is more expensive, but it's better, and they have to understand and believe in why those ways are better. So, yeah, and and you know, I I talk about this often because I I want to be sensitive to people having you know varying budgets, and I know times are even more tough right now with inflation, like you mentioned. I think some of this requires a reframing in our brain that we we need to put our health first, you know, like we're supposed to be spending more money on our food because without our health, we have nothing. We can't show up for our jobs. We don't have energy to get out of bed. Like health should be first and foremost before we're buying nice cars, designer bags, or, you know, whatever it is. And and again, I want to be sensitive to different differing budgets, but 
we, I forgot the exact percentage, but we are one of the lowest on the list of countries that spend money on food. Most countries spend way more money on food than we do. And what happens on the back end is that now we're spending way more on healthcare costs than we're spending on food. So we're still spending that money. And this is also what I try to get people to understand is that you're either going to spend it up front or you're going to spend it like fourfold later on surgeries, medications, doctor bills. And so if we can get ahead of that and be in this preventative mindset and prevent the things that are coming, I also say too, like, the healthier you are, the better you're going to show up for your job. You're probably going to be able to make more money because your brain's going to be working better. So like your life only improves when you, when you put those better foods in your body. It's just about this, again, this reframe and maybe a struggle for a little bit, you know, like trying to wrap your, your, your budget around, like having to spend more money on your food. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's indicative though of a lot of things. Like we, we just want in society, we just want this quick fix. Just give me what feels Good. Now what's convenient? What can I eat in the car? You know, we don't sit down and cook, you know, and sit down at the table anymore. Like we've just, we've convinced ourselves that this hustle and bustle and all these other things that we spend money on and what we spend time on make us more efficient or more productive. But I, I think it is reductive And it. And like what you're talking to too, goes back to the soil. Like the way a lot of American farming is set up right now is how do we cover a lot of acres? How do we go fast? Well, we have lots of solutions for that, but they have all sorts of deleterious impacts on the actual soil. And so we've lost, you know, over the last hundred years, we've lost roughly, um, I think my stats are right here, about half of our organic matter in our soil, which is what makes soil black, like in Iowa. And then actually physically about a third of our topsoil in the Midwest uh, has disappeared since uh, we broke the prairie with the plow. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, those are long time horizons. And so within agriculture, a lot of people look and they'll say, well, my soil's still black. I can look out this field across the road from my house right now. It's still black or kind of black, at least in spots. And so why why should I change when it might take 50 or 60 years to really, well, eventually, you know, we talk about feeding the world all the time in the business of agriculture, you know, feed the world by 2050, 9 billion people, blah, blah, blah. Uh, what I'm interested in is making sure that we have soil systems that are able, healthy enough to support people not only in 2050, but what about 2060 and 2070? And have we degraded ourselves so much that, you know, because that's really what has happened. The more we degrade things, the more we rely on uh, the evolution of technological solutions from big ag to kind of cover up and be the band-aids over the cost of what we've done to, you know, the richest soil in the world um, over time. And so um, it's just, it's, you know, soil health is the same thing as human health. You go for the quick, easy fix, you're going to have problems. And so it's either, like you said, invest now and do the hard things or pay the consequences later. Yeah. And this concept of feed the world is really interesting. I'm curious, did that first come from Monsanto? Because I know that was their big thing with like GMOs and, or has that just always been kind of the narrative? Oh, uh, yeah. World? I mean, when I was in retail, like, I don't know if I would link it. I mean, I, I, Every major chemical company that I would go to their their winter like pump up the jam hype meetings, you know, <laughs> like it was it'd be this club music and you know oh 20, 20, 50, 9 billion people and we got to do it and uh, yeah I mean it's just been it's been the narrative ever since I've you know whenever we we kind of got focused on this nine billion population number that's always been something ever as long as I've been in and you know we've got to find a way to get there. Um, 
that's yeah, but it it wasn't just a Monsanto thing for sure. I saw it oh, with okay. all the big companies. So yeah, I was just curious because that's where I was. That's where I was first hearing it all. So from that perspective and what you do now, which we're gonna we're gonna dive into, um, is this scalable? Really, like, is this something that like yes, like it's gonna be more expensive, but is this something that we could get everyone on board? And is it possible to be scalable? I guess for feed the world or yeah, I well, this is how I look at it. I try to be really. Um, I really try to be uh, in reality with with how these things. It's uh, there, there's too much of uh, idealistic optimism sometimes on where things are actually going to shake out. But I I really see that there, this regenerative lane lane can make a difference and it can scale. Can it scale so that everything is that way? I don't know if that's the case. But for the consumers that are interested, I think there's a tremendous amount of growth possible for people that are are, are concerned about this to develop a network of producers to feed that market. And so maybe that's 20, 30, 40% of the market. Eventually it's not, it's nowhere close to that, you know, right now, um, as far as, you know, at least how things are produced. Um, but I, I think there's uh, there's a pathway to get there. And yes, I believe what we're going to talk about with my system is uh, something that is truly, uh, truly scalable. If, um, if we can get the support, um, you know, that, what we need to to get it there but there's not big ag does not have a lot of interest in supporting uh to a certain extent what i do because i take away the need for uh some of those things for the inputs i'm talking and we'll get into that stuff but i'll I'll leave it at there for now so well let's dive into that because i was going to be my first question i want to compare side by side so what do you see the issues right now in big ag that are not sustainable and then we'll dive into like why why you made these changes with what the system that you do now. So what's not sustainable with big ag right now? Well, the the biggest thing is the fact that it's it's just like every aspect of our economy. We we've, we've we're, we're trying to be convinced all the time that bigger is constantly better, and we're at this like tipping point in in uh, farming where the average age of the U.S. farmer is about I think now sixty or sixty one years old, and uh, the amount of land that is held by people of that or controlled or managed um, is probably, boy, it's it's got to be, you know, 60% maybe or 60 to 70%. So a tremendous amount of land uh, or land ownership, you know, by the baby boomer, boomer generation is going to transfer, you know, here in the next 10 to 15 years. And when that happens... Um, most likely what's going to occur is uh, a lot of people are going to get kicked to the exits um, and there's going to be a lot of farmers that get uh, substantially bigger uh, by several scales of magnitude. When you're farming at scale, um, where you're, you know, now we have farms in Iowa, for example, that 40, 50, 60,000 acres uh, per farm at the biggest level, and we have more of those, these regenerative principles are very, very difficult to do at that type of a level. Because when you're farming at that level, uh, you're not thinking about like making the best decisions for the farm. It's more like, you know, it's it's like a kind of a factory decision. We're in sector four today, and we're going to plant 3,600 acres in sector four. Whether those farms are fit to plant or not, or it's the best management practice to be there today, we're in sector four and we need to move to sector five tomorrow. And that's, you know, like how I farm. That's not how I farm at all. I'm at a much smaller scale where I take the time to implement, you know, uh, some of these practices, which take a higher degree of management, higher skilled labor, um, but also produce, you know, a better result. And so 
that's one of the biggest issues that I see is that the direction that agriculture is going right now is toward massive uh, scaled operations, which make a lot of these things that we're trying to potentially stop or reverse very, very difficult to achieve with the way the current farm policy is set up right now. And, you know, farmers aren't necessarily the bad. I mean, a lot, I think too many times people demonize farmers uh, because farmers simply react to the policy. And that's what I tell people all the time. Uh, the policy is 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 the issue, and uh, there's a lot of big money influences that control that policy. Um, but if we want to see farming change, uh, the policy is really where it starts. I have been a longtime supporter and lover of Organifi, and I'm so excited to announce that they are rolling out a special product line just for kids. They're committed to delivering the same level of quality nutrition and a yummy experience even picky kiddos will love. To kick off this line, they're gonna be launching a kids greens called Easy Greens, as well as an immunity product called Protect. The kids greens is a nourishing and delicious blend of superfoods and veggies that provides essential nutrients, probiotics, and digestive enzymes to bring balance to kids growing bodies without fillers, additives, or junk. The main ingredients are nutrient-rich veggies, carrot, broccoli, sprout, spinach, and beet, superfoods like moringa and chlorella, and digestive support like digestive enzymes, probiotics, and fiber. And the kids immunity is gonna support your child daily immune health with a berry blast of herbs and superfoods that work to strengthen the body's first line of defense. It has orange and acerole cherry. It has astragalus, which is a potent adaptogenic root used to support and boost the immune system. Also elderberry, which is an antioxidant-rich healing plant that supports the body's defenses against illness. And then of course, propolis, which is the bodyguard of the beehive that can help naturally prevent sickness and modulate the immune system. Make sure to go to the website and check out some of my favorites, especially as we are going into winter. I love their critical immune support. It's fast acting immune support for quicker recovery and a stronger sense of well-being. I'm also a huge, huge fan of their liver reset. It supports the liver natural detoxification process with a unique formula to improve liver health, digestion, and energy. I tell everyone I know and including you guys, my audience, that I think everyone needs to be on a liver supplement because we are being exposed to so many different environmental toxins, stuff in our water, pesticides in our food, stuff in the air that all has to go through our liver. And so our livers are really working on overtime right now. And taking something that will protect our liver health is absolutely imperative. They also have green juices. They have a chocolate gold, which is a delicious bedtime drink that I like to drink before bed. It tastes like hot chocolate and there's like no sugar in there. And it really helps you get sleepy and ready for bed. And it's a great bedtime treat. So if you guys want to try any of these products, go to Organifi.com. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash Real Foodology. Or you can just go to Organifi.com com and use code real foodology. Not all probiotics are created equal. I cannot stress this enough. You cannot just go to the grocery store or Whole Foods and buy any probiotic off the shelf. It is so incredibly important that you are getting a good high quality probiotic. The reason not all probiotics are created equal is because a lot of these probiotics or, you know, the good gut bacteria that need to populate our gut never actually make it to our guts. This is why you will hear companies saying our bacteria arrives alive. That is really incredibly important. And this is why I love Seed Probiotic. Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic is a broad spectrum two-in-one plant-based prebiotic and 24-strain probiotic. If you guys follow my stories on Instagram, you will know that they have a pretty extensive delivery technology in a dual capsule design. And what's really cool and special about this, it's very unique, 
it essentially potentially delivers more bacteria to the colon because it gets through all of the stomach acid and everything else that would otherwise burn up this bacteria and not allow it to get to the gut to repopulate our gut. They also have a proprietary formulation of 24 distinct probiotic strains in scientifically studied dosages, systemic benefits beyond the gut, and proprietary engineered two-in-one capsule that I was just talking about that protects probiotics through digestion to ensure delivery to the colon. It's really cool. If you actually take the green cap and you open it in your hand, you will see another capsule pops out with some of the supplement in there as well. So when I say that there are systemic benefits beyond the gut, what does that mean? It's including gastrointestinal or GI function, skin health, heart health, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, and micronutrient synthesis of vitamins B9 and B12. Gut immune function is not boosting the immune system. It is about supporting the crosstalk between your intestinal cells and your immune cells. Many people see improvements in digestion within 24 to 48 hours, which can include bowel movement regularity and eased bloating. If you want to start a new healthy habit today, visit seed.com slash realfoodology and use code realfoodology to redeem 30% off your first month of Seed's DS01 daily symbiotic. That's seed.com slash realfoodology and use code realfoodology. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. It's really important to pay attention to who we're voting in in Washington, you know? But I mean, it, it's scary because we're seeing lobbying happen all across the board. Like, it's not even party dependent. No, and it, it, it's every sector of the economy, you know, whether yeah. it's big pharma or big food or, yep. you know, energy or whatever, you know, so. Yeah, that's what's scary about it. And then also, too, you mentioned that you're seeing such a change in like the communities in rural, rural America, which is really sad and upsetting to me because I see from from my standpoint and what I talk about a lot is this disparity of accessibility for food for people. And, and I'm seeing it from a nutritionist standpoint of just how this is really affecting people's health. And I'm curious to hear what you what you meant when you said like you see the difference in the communities of rural America like that breaks my heart. Well, there's, you know, so to, well, there's, there's a couple different facets to that, but like, you know, the, uh, the main streets look completely different. Um, there are still, you know, plenty of, of main streets that have locally owned businesses, but there's more national chains that have come in and, and compete things like Dollar General and Family Tree, which, you know, for a lot of communities that becomes your grocery store and it's pure garbage, you know, uh, and, or it's like in, in my, uh, my original hometown, we still have a small grocery store, but most people, I would say, get their groceries from the Casey's, uh, you know, general store gas station, and it's just complete garbage. I walk in there, and you look at the food, and then you look at the people standing in line, and, like, it's just not good. Um, you know, and then there's just, uh, there, and there's been a, uh, you know, agriculture used to be the backbone of these rural economies, and there's so there's so many fewer farmers right now um, that it just doesn't exist. And a lot of farmers don't do business necessarily in their, their hometown like they used to 30 or 40 years ago where there was maybe a couple machinery dealers and a couple feed stores. And, you know, like when I was born, there were four different places in town to sell livestock. You know, now we, 
we don't even have a place to hardly sell if you're an independent producer to sell livestock because it's all gone to the way of the vertical integrators. So even if you wanted to sell hogs, it's difficult to do that, to have access to a market as an independent farmer. So there's just been a whole host of things. Um, it's not that living out here is bad. I don't know that I, you know, my brother lives in, in Los Angeles and uh, I, I went out there for his wedding and I don't know that I'd want to live in LA uh, compared to here because this is still pretty a great place to be and have wide open spaces and um, but it's definitely changed and I think it's going to, you know, as what I talked about this trans transformation next 10, 15 years, it's going to get substantially worse and, uh, having a family and having a place for your kids to go to school. You may have to drive your kids 30, 40, 50 miles to find enough kids to have a school, you know, or churches or any of those, you know, things that community is, um, you know, based around. So, yeah, well, I mean, I, I know I just see this from like a trend standpoint online where so many people are talking about how they want to get out of the big cities. They want more land. They want to have more access to fresh food. Like there is this, it feels like there's this kind of movement of wanting to get away from this like big corporate and trying to get back to smaller, more local, like community style living. So I definitely think people are are feeling the effects of that. Yeah, it's just, it's so interesting. I just wanted to ask you that because it, it's it's interesting to hear your perspective on that. And I would think too, that when you live in an area like that, where there's so much, so many farms and so much food being grown, that people would have access to farmer's markets and this like fresh grown food. But my instinct is that it's probably all getting shipped out. Yeah, I mean, we we don't, we don't, we have a few farmer's markets around here, but I mean, uh, the it's kind of interesting. I would say this too, like the imp, the interest in, uh, the interest in quality food is probably less here than where when I go to the big cities, uh, for sure, um, of that interest. Because I think a lot of people, a lot of people don't see any anything wrong, and they're almost there's a pride about how we do things. Uh, you know, we work hard as as farmers, we raise this food, and and how dare anybody suggest anything different that maybe we could do something differently. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say. You know, definitely uh, within the rural community, there's probably a resentment toward, uh, you know, the coastal um, opinions of people about how we should do things. But I and I get that, like nobody wants an outsider telling them how to do. But like I'm an insider and like I've, I understand this and I understand this, the science, you know, behind what we're doing, the good and the bad. And, um, you know, I just I the older I get, the more I care about legacy and what happens in the future for future generations. And I'm I'm passionate about soil, and uh, I'm passionate about hopefully restoring this local community thing. And I would I mean I would love for people from the coast to come out here and help repopulate these areas. If you want to get out of the concrete jungle, uh, there's and you can work remotely. Man, that's there is especially in my neighborhood. Uh, there's some some pretty affordable cost of living. Uh, I think I was talking to my brother and he was saying like for, he was home for Thanksgiving and he was looking at a like a uh, condo or something. It was like eight hundred and fifty or nine hundred thousand bucks. I mean, there was a a neighbor to my homestead uh, sold their acreage, three acres uh, with a house and buildings on it for one hundred and forty thousand dollars here uh, last week. Oh, so my God. <laughs> I mean, I'm in the same position as your brother. I live in LA and I was just looking at places and I was like horrified by the prices. And same thing. I grew up in Texas. And so I keep making jokes that maybe I just need to go back home. But I mean, even Texas is getting more yeah. expensive. It's crazy. Yeah. Joe Rogan wrecked that, I think. So yeah, he really did. He really did. 
<laughs> he created like a whole movement to Texas. I know it's yeah. so funny. Yeah. Okay. So we've been like hinting at this. Let's talk about what you do. So it's called stock cropping, correct? Correct. And it's a form of regenerative farming, right? So just explain to people what your method is. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've never been to the Midwest uh, or if you have, you know, if you drive down Interstate 80 or uh, 35, all you pretty much see on either side is either usually in Iowa, a, a cornfield or a soybean field. Um, and the reason that happens is that usually we have a rotation um, in Iowa where one year we grow corn, the next year we grow soybeans. There are different types of crops. There's some some benefits, uh, you know, to doing that. And that's kind of the program that we've had. It's not always the way Iowa's been, you know, 60, 70, 80 years ago. Iowa was substantially more uh, diversified. We uh, Every farm pretty much had uh, at least one or two types of livestock, sometimes even more. Uh, every farm would maybe have, you know, three, four, five, six different crops, you know, that were grown. Uh, the, ro the crop rotations uh, were used more as a tool because we didn't have all the technology. Um, and so really the system that we've created here that we call stock cropping is kind of um, a hybridization of those two systems, so the old system and the new system, where we take a cornfield and instead of planting all corn to it uh, or all soybeans, what we do is we interlace uh, row crops with uh, annual pasture strips. So when I say strips, I mean strips that are uh, anywhere from 10 to 30 feet wide and they alternate across the whole field. So you kind of have this, what they call strip intercropping pattern. And so we have the row crop and we grow it next to a strip of pasture, okay? And so uh, what the pasture allows us to do is then integrate livestock back into the middle of a corn production field. And the way that we have done that is that we have invented what we believe to be the world's first multi-species autonomous livestock uh, mobile grazing barn, which is a mouthful, which we simply call, we call our barns cluster clucks, aptly named because we house uh, sheep and goats, uh, pigs, and then chickens in a separated uh, sequential arrangement. And our barns are powered by uh, solar power. We've got uh, onboard electric motors uh, with uh, computer systems, cell modems, GPS sensors, uh, so that the barns self-steer themselves down these strips or advance themselves based off of an, uh, an iPhone app. Uh, so we have the Cluster Cluck app on our iPhone where we can program movement uh, several times a day. So the animals are constantly marching through these strips. Um, and so the animals interact with the plants. They interact with the soil. They lay down their nutrient-rich manure. Uh, and the, the best part about it is, uh, and I'll make the comparison here, but you know, the manure is immediately taken back up by the, the, the pasture plants after the barn has passed it over and it ties it up and stabilizes it so it doesn't end up running off into the ditch or going into our tile lines, which empty into the Mississippi River eventually. The beautiful part about the system is that after a year of running the animals on the strips of pasture and planting corn in between, the next year we simply take and rotate those strips, okay? And where the animals went, now we plant corn. And where the corn was, now we plant the animals to regenerate where the corn was. And, and so instead of, instead of like buying our nutrients uh, from across the pond and shipping them and having all this expense, we make this incredibly... Uh, hyper-local uh, closed-loop system, super low carbon fo uh, footprint, um, 
you know, and and make it so that the farmer hopefully retains more of the value in minimizing the need for the inputs that I sold. And that's part of the the the, the one of the cool things about this system is that when you grow corn in a schematic like this, you actually can increase production. And because corn is a tall crop, and if you grow it next to a shorter crop, I'm trying to do this on the screen so it makes sense, uh, like a pasture, you get more sunlight on the edge rows. So if you have eight rows of corn and then pasture, the edge rows have full sunlight upside up and down the plant and it allows for more photosynthesis to take place on there. And so we can boost corn production to give you an example. So on my normal corn acres this year, I grew about 230 bushels an acre in the stock cropper system that we had hardly any inputs in at all. We grew 325 bushel an acre corn this year. Wow. The idea that regenerative uh, systems have to be less productive we've kind of find a, a way here to uh, flip that narrative on its head. And that's the thing, like farmers, you know, it's very difficult to change farmers' minds if they're going to get less of something. And I think that's what's powerful and what we found here is that we can grow some hellacious corn and then feed that corn back to the livestock the next year. So the we don't have to truck the grain all over, you know, the countryside to get it. We can take it into the farmyard, grind it up, bring it back out, feed them back to the animals and really have this perfect closed loop system. And, and the animals are way happier, you know, too, they're outside, you know, it's, they're not, it's not free range because they still have cages, you know, or, you know, uh, fences and pens. So, because they can't go roam off and kill all the corn or you lose, you know, the ability to feed them. And so, uh, you know, with, with all of this stuff, people are going to have to make concessions. Uh, you can't have your cake and eat it too with all this stuff. And so, uh, you know, like I said, this is not free range, but this is substantially, substantially better than uh, the way that, in my opinion, uh, most of the meat, uh, you know, that we consume, especially pork and chicken, uh, is produced when it's uh, animals never see soil, they're on concrete slats, uh, or never see sunshine their entire life. So... Yeah. And at least these animals are getting exercise and they're moving around. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's so cool. It's, uh, I was actually just talking to the founder of Pasture Bird yesterday on my podcast. Yep. I don't know if you know him. Paul Greaves. Yep. Yeah. Paul Greaves. He's amazing. And he, he said he has a similar setup with like a little solar powered barn or, or maybe it's like his chicken coop that moves around, which is such a cool concept. I'm so curious just for my brain. Cause I was like trying to envision this. So this barn or like cluster, what do you call it? Cluster coop that moves around. Cluster cluck. You have to cluster say it really cluck. carefully. Cluck. Cluster yeah. cluck. Okay. Yeah. Try saying that four times in a row. Um, how fast is it going? Is it going like 24 seven that it's moving or does it move on like certain days? Like yeah, so uh, the way that we have it set up currently is that it makes three or four movements uh, a day. And so the, the depth of the pens that the animals in are anywhere between like eight to 10 feet. Uh, and so we're trying to move that width of vegetation uh, every, say, three or four hours so that the ruminants that, you know, feed off of the vegetation, the, the sheep and the goats, or we've done cattle um, in some instances as well. We want to keep them to make sure their bellies are full, you know, especially for the first two th thirds of the day. And uh, so we we can program it to move uh, whatever distance at whatever time uh, we want and the barn will march itself ahead. So what we've done normally here is we've moved anywhere from 24 to 32 feet a day so that every couple hours they're constantly moving. They're never sitting in their own, you know, you know, manure stockpiles of that stuff, like, cause we're always moving into, into fresh pasture with it, so. Well, and 
now instead of using these synthetic fertilizers, you guys are actually using real healthy, rich manure to then feed the soil, which is really important. This is again, what Paul Greaves was talking about where we, he believes that we have really messed up in big agriculture is that we have removed the animals from the plants and they work together in this beautiful symbiotic relationship. And so putting the animals back in with the plants is what's going to create an overall like healthier ecosystem for all of us and just for the earth too. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that, and the thing that I think is powerful about our system is um, we're not using just one species of livestock. We're integrating multiple because every different species has a little bit different, you know, microbiome in their gut. And when they, when, and when they defecate it uh, or urinate it out, they all have unique attributes that they go into fueling soil health. It's the same thing with plants, you know? And so like in our system, we have 10 X the amount of biodiversity in a field versus just growing corn or just growing soybeans. But but the combination of the different species of pasture plants we're using with the different species of livestock. um, And that's part of the reason why, you know, we've had some, uh, at least from a yield standpoint with corn, some really, really impressive results because I think we're we're substantially improving our soil at the same time. Yeah, and this is also helping with uh, the monocrop issue that we have right now, which is just, you know, the rows and rows, for people listening, the rows and rows of corn or the rows and rows of soybeans that they're just, that's the only thing they're growing. And I talk about a lot how horrible that is for the soil. And so now when you're adding in all these other inputs, it's really helping to build up that that healthy soil again while yeah, still making all that corn that we need to make that the farmers are wanting to make. Sorry. Yeah. 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 That's correct. And, you know, and part of the, the thing is, and this is a really controversial thing within, within ag right now is like, I'm, I'm very concerned and skeptical, skeptical about the longevity of ethanol. Um, Cause ethanol is where most of my corn goes uh, right now on my, uh, on my major production acres. I just am getting done today, finishing up a pollen, a contract of corn in um, that goes to the ethanol plant. But if, policy shifts or things don't line up where that uh, becomes, uh, you know, more of a mainstay or something that's going to last substantially in the future, uh, that's a big, big problem for agriculture, for big ag, because in Iowa, I think it's six out of every 10 bushels uh, goes to an ethanol plant. Uh, And nationally, it's four out of 10. So if that market goes away, what are we going to do? And that's kind of why we thought, you know, because before ethanol, that's what we did. We either exported or we fed stuff back to livestock or we found other sources and uh you know 60 or 70 80 years ago when farms were uh, more sovereign people grew their crops not to take to town they grew it to feed it to the livestock and you walked the value off the farm in the form of livestock and that's really you know kind of stock cropper is essentially getting back to that uh you know but we're we're using new age technology you know with gps and phone apps and all of those things to uh solar panels to make it work so yeah yeah i mean and and the ethanol thing is a big issue what do you think like do you have any other solution for that like is there uh, yeah i don't know like what are your thoughts around that the fact that we use so much of that for ethanol for alcohol it's just crazy um yeah, I don't have a solution on where we're go- what we're going to do with sixty uh, percent or you know forty percent of the bushels that uh, <laughs> go to that, and that's that's why there is so much uh, in Iowa right now. You know, there's a very um, hot potato political uh, issue with um, trying to decarbonize ethanol production by taking the CO two out of the plants and putting it in a pipeline and shipping it to North Dakota and burying it in the uh, Bakken uh, oil oil fields uh, deep what? underground. Wait, oh, this is crazy. Oh, you're not Why? aware of this? No. 
Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, this is, this is big, a really, really big deal in the Midwest right now. So um, like, help me understand why this is what I don't understand is that, are they just not recognizing that if you're practicing more regeneratively and you are keeping the topsoil there, the carbon's automatically going to be pulled back into the soil. Like why are we not? Yeah. Yeah. Help me understand all this. You're right to a point. Uh, but with, you know, if you, uh, you should come out to Iowa and I'll take you to, I'll take you on a tour and I'll show you. But if you go to an ethanol plant, uh, you know, there's a lot of CO2 emissions that come off from the operation of the plant. And so that has nothing to do with how I raise the grain, you know, because that's yeah. already done at that point. So yeah. what they're trying to do to get the carbon score low enough so that they can market ethanol into markets like California that have, you know, that are concerned about carbon intensity score. That's the big uh, catchphrase now in, in uh in ag is carbon intensity and trying to lower that. What they're going to do in order to try to get ethanol down to a much lower carbon intensity score is to basically bottle the CO2 uh, and then put it in a pipeline, which they have to build and go across farmland all across the state and then uh, all the way up to North Dakota to that uh, to the Bakken oil field and then inject it deep into the well and, and uh, supposedly store it uh, underground, um, you know, for or uh, in perpetuity. This is crazy. Why are we not thinking from a long-standing standpoint here? Because I, all I think is, okay, what are we going to do when we run out of storage? And what are we going to do with all that that's being stored? Like we have no idea what the effects of that are down the line. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, but, you know, so a lot of this stuff is is come through, there's, it's big money. That's why uh, right now there's huge money in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, uh, through a couple of the tax credit uh, programs that are available to, and there's some really, really big, uh, big dollar players in Iowa trying to get this through because they can earn enormous tax credits and, uh, you know, towards getting this completed, uh, essentially to pump CO2 out of Iowa and then up to uh, to the Bach. And, how, so. do, how do the farmers, the majority of farmers feel about that? Are they on board? Um, well, it's, they're conflicted, right? Because we need the ethanol, uh, yeah. but they, they, they hate, uh, the idea of eminent domain. And so that's really what's on the table right now is there's most farmers don't want the pipeline to go through. There's a, it's a huge safety issue. If there's been CO2 yeah, pipelines that, yeah, if they've had bursts, uh, it's, it's incredibly toxic. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of farmer, um, you know, or landowner, I should say, concern and hold back on it right now. There's, there were three pipelines originally, two of which in the last month have withdrawn their, applications and there's one left at this point mm. so that's trying well, to fingers build. crossed they also <laughs> withdraw theirs well we'll see i mean if they do it's gonna it potentially depending on the the political winds of change uh, around ethanol i mean it um if there's not a market for ethanol that's going to be a, a substantial uh substantial hit uh to the to the egg economy um if uh, because we've we've evolved when i got into the business ethanol was just coming in and the ag business has geared up and to produce a lot more corn than what we were doing in 2005 when I when I got in or three when I got into the business and so um, it'll have major implications uh, environmentally you know uh, perhaps it would be good but there's you know there's a lot of people uh, in the meanwhile that live in the Midwest that would significantly be impacted by it so yeah that's a big concern. I, I want to understand this relationship a little bit more just from a farmer's standpoint, because I, I talk about this where, you know, we we pay subsidies to farmers to grow specific crops, for example, like corn, 
And as a result, we have such a massive amount of it that we're now pushing it into other things. Like for example, I tell people all the time that it's why you'll look at the back of a package and it most often says contains corn, wheat, and soy because we have so much of this crop that we're literally throwing it into everything. So how how does that relationship kind of drive our food and like what farmers grow and then how like all of a sudden, like basically what I'm trying to say is like now all of a sudden we're finding corn syrup in literally everything because we have so much of it, yeah, right? And they're still paying subsidies to farmers to grow these, right? The corn, yeah. wheat, and soy. Are those the top ones? Uh, yes, correct. Of, of the, and then uh, cotton, I believe, is the other one that is subsidized the heaviest. But uh, corn and soy take the, uh, take the cake, at least here in the Midwest. So, And that's why we're finding all these crops in so much of our food. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, the, the 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 like I said before, the policy dictates what we grow, and the and do we need subsidies? Uh, there's a lot of farmers that say we should get rid of them uh, altogether. I don't. I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm not in favor of that. I think subsidies should have teeth, though, and I think they should have requirements. So um, a year ago, I put out. So the farm bill is, uh, uh, you know, it was supposed to be done by now. It's been uh, extended into next year. Um, but I, I really think the farm bill and crop insurance uh, specifically could be used as vehicles for farmers to, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily be forced, but given the choice. So like uh, on my, I'll just uh, try to be brief to explain this. Crop insurance on my farm with corn and soybeans, uh, you as the taxpayer pay about 63% of my crop insurance premium. So thank you for doing that. Uh, in paying uh, for that portion of my premium, there is virtually uh, nothing for strings attached to say how I need to farm. And so my contention as a farmer is that I think you should get something for that. Um, and I, I think uh, you should expect that if uh, public dollars are going to uh, subsidize me, you should have uh, the reassurance that we're going to have uh, soil in the future and that we have clean water. And that's my responsibility in exchange for you helping me reduce the very risky practice of farming because farming is it's legalized gambling uh, when you're looking at the dollars that we handle and dealing with weather and climate issues and all of those things. So, uh, but I, that's one of the contingencies that I think from a subsidy thing that could be improved immediately is, is requiring uh, more uh, regenerative or soil health type practices and principles to be required in order to earn the full subsidy that the public invests uh, in in farming. I agree. And I, I, I want to know your thoughts on this. I've always wondered, why are we not paying farmer subsidies to grow healthier foods as well? Yeah, this is a great question. And, you know? Uh, you know, the thing is, is that farmers do not like... Uh, Farmers don't like sticks. Um, they tend to like carrots. Uh, and there's a lot of money that gets invested in carrots federally to try to get farmers to change. But the rate of change that you see is uh, very, 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 very minimal. Um, and so the, the, the thing with my ideas is it, won't, it would be kind of a combination of a carrot or a stick where uh, they wouldn't have to do it. It's just that the taxpayer isn't going to pay them as much if they choose not to do the things that potentially benefit the people that don't live on the farm. So... And for people listening that don't know what the farm bill is, what is a farm bill and how does that affect us? And obviously, how does it affect farmers? So the farm bill um, is something that gets uh, debated and put into place every five years uh, within Congress. This year uh, was supposed to be done. It's been delayed um, uh, into next year, but it essentially sets the policy for uh, a lot of things within uh, production agriculture. But most of the farm bill, I think it's like 
Uh, I think it's like 85% of it uh, comes down to uh, food assistance, so SNAP-type programs. So uh, SNAP and uh, a lot of the subsidy programs are all kind of tied together in in one uh, big bumble, bundle. But it's essentially, uh, you know, the food assistance programs, those policies, as well as uh, the policies that guide uh, what, you know, the Department of Agriculture wants us uh, to produce and the rules and regulations that go in around that. And so... Um, if you're, you know, you don't like how things are uh, and how we do things, um, the food bill dictates, uh, or the, I'm sorry, not the food bill, the farm bill should probably be called the food bill. It should bill. be the food uh, bill. Yeah. I was like, that uh, sounds right. <laughs> yeah. The, the farm bill is the thing that uh, needs to have the most amount of attention uh, in policy shift to, uh, to actually get change enforced because things like crop insurance uh, are incredibly important. I mean, 90% of producers uh, have crop insurance. And so it's something that touches almost every operation that's out here. So, yeah. Well, and, you know, and I was going to ask you, how can we get these higher quality foods more accessible to everyone? And this is literally how it's like, we need to be putting money into farmers growing other crops outside of corn, wheat, and soy, because yeah. I would argue that that's a lot of our issue right now, as far as like from an obesity standpoint, from a, a disease standpoint, like a chronic disease standpoint is that we are just, we are eating so much corn, wheat, and soy that our bodies have had enough. It's in everything now. Yeah, it is. But I don't know if it's that. I think it's the, the ultra processed. Yes. Uh, you well, know, that's, that's what it. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the, like my wife, um, uh, I'm going to recommend I, I, the little bit of digging I did on you um, ahead of this. She would, she is a total foodie and would, would love because uh, you would love what you do because uh, she, Thank she you. is very, very, very particular on what we eat as a, as a family and yeah. um, very, very health conscious. And uh, um, you know, we don't eat any of the crap from the middle of the grocery store uh, and we grow all of our own meat, you know, here we butcher it all of ourselves. We do it together as a family and we enjoy it throughout the, the whole year. So I think, uh, uh, you know, people getting back to pr promote agriculture that produces a diversity of things, uh, you know, livestock and cropping systems uh, together to make them as diverse as possible makes everything better, in my opinion, from top to bottom. Uh, and then people making the choice and the commitment to eat well, cook well, eat as a family, uh, you know, be more food literate. Uh, those are the things that we've really failed. We've traded all that stuff in for convenience and on-the-go lifestyles, and we're worse off for it. Um, and that's that's you know what it comes down to for me. So, yeah, absolutely. And I'm in full agreement with you. It's the hyper-processed foods. I guess what I was trying to say is just making the connection that so many of these hyper-processed foods are cheap and contain you know corn, wheat, and soy because we're paying subsidies for those. And I, I would yeah. love to see the subsidies, like you said, diversified. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if that would happen, there would be more diverse things uh, grown. Because like I said, farmers follow the policy. If there's one thing that people that don't understand farming, that is what you should come away from this podcast from. Yeah, yeah. And this is God, this has been so helpful and informative. Thank you. So for people listening, they're just like, oh man, like how, how can we get involved? How can we... Um, anything from like the farm bill or like encouraging farmers to grow these kinds of foods, like as the consumer, what can someone do listening? I think the biggest thing, uh, like I said, is try to have an impact on policy. Talk to your, talk to your legislators, uh, uh, you know, tell them this stuff is important to you. Tell them the concerns that, that you have about the direction, you know, that I've kind of talked about where uh, food is happening. If we just 
keep doing the same thing that we've done. It's it's not going to magically get better and it's on its own. There's going to be a lot, there's a ton of greenwashing right now, but the greenwashing doesn't mean anything. And uh, I go to a lot of meetings and uh, all the time and I listen to a lot of these big companies and they're just looking to check a box in most of the cases and they're not trying to do uh, the real work on the ground that it takes. And so, you know, our, uh, con- you know, congressional representatives need to, uh, to hear about that, that it's important. And we changed the policy. I think that's probably one of the biggest things. You can go and talk to farmers and tell them all you want, but if they can't make money, uh, doing it because they can't get a loan from the bank because they can't get crop insurance to grow apricots or you know some some other thing that isn't normally grown. It doesn't mean anything, right? And so, uh, you know, ultimately, farming is a business, and I I think people uh, have delusions of grandeur um, sometimes with not understanding that that we just we can't do things that feel good. We need to, we still need to make a living doing this yeah. out here. So, yeah, that's a great point that people really need to hear. Because look, at the end of the day, like obviously farmers want to grow foods that are healthy and good for us because they, like you said earlier, they take a lot of pride in the fact that they're feeding America and they should. I mean, I say this all the time too. I'm like, farmers are like the backbone of this country because without them, we don't eat, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we need to find other ways to support farmers and also have so much respect for them and and hopefully change this farm bill. I think this is a really big um, really big issue right now. And this is actually not the direction I was going to take this podcast, but I love this so much because I think this is so important for people to hear. Is there anything else before we go that you feel like that we didn't cover that's really important for people to know and, and hear? Uh, no, I think uh, I'm really pleased with this conversation, how it's went. I, I think uh, we've hopefully laid out some things for the audience to consider. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in learning more about uh, what, uh, you know, the things that I'm working on in the system called stock cropping, you know, we're we're very much in infancy. This is not something we're doing on thousands of acres or a small experimental operation, uh, you know, uh, bootstrapping uh, what we're doing to try to come up with a system that is scalable uh, to, you know, produce protein in a better way that's better for the soil and rural communities. And so check out our YouTube page. Uh, we're on Facebook um, uh, and on Twitter as well. Those are the, uh, the best places to follow along. And if you like what you hear, you want to, you know, uh, ask questions uh, to me directly, I, I respond to about everybody that uh, uh, that reaches out to me. So, uh, And know, where please. is that? Where can they reach out to you? So, uh uh, the stock cropper at gmail.com is my email. Uh, the stock cropper.com is my website. And then if you search stock cropper on uh, Twitter, Facebook, um, or YouTube, any of those, if you want to see what the system looks like, YouTube is the best place to go. Um, I've documented uh, our system and, and the process over the last four years. And so if you want to see the cluster clucks move, uh, you want to see the animals, uh, you want to see how it's in relationship to the corn. It's hard to visualize this over a podcast a lot of the time. So YouTube is probably the best place to go to uh, to see that stuff. Yeah, that's so cool. I definitely encourage everyone listening to go check it out. Oh, and then last last but not least, uh, Go yeah. Seafood Inc. too. Yes. Uh, that debuts uh, in, I believe, uh, I think it's April. Um, is when that's uh, due to hit, uh, I think, some limited releases in theaters and uh, hopefully streaming as well. So Awesome. Yeah, I feel so fortunate I got to see it at Telluride Film Fest and it's great. Definitely go check it out, everyone. And you'll see Zach in there as well. That's how we first met. Um, are, is, do you have a program set up where if someone's listening and they're really interested and they're already farming and they want to start doing this, that you help them kind of start it out? or? Uh, so... 
Right now, our biggest focus is, is we're trying to get uh, our cluster clucks to the point of uh, manu uh, scaled manufacturing. And so we're uh, finishing up a couple different prototype uh, designs uh, and then hopefully uh, bringing them to market. Um, and so that's really what makes it plausible uh, is to have this device that can contain multiple species to really jazzercise your soil, so to say. <laughs> um, and and uh, so that's... that's uh, uh, you know, I would say we're within a year probably of being able to do that. And so if you're interested, if you're a farmer and you're thinking this sounds like a great uh, uh, great idea that you'd like to employ, check out the YouTube content so you can see what it's about. And then uh, stay in contact. If you sign up on our mailing list uh, on our website, uh, as soon as we have barns that are available, um, you know, we will, we will make people aware on that uh, side. And one of the things, you know, I guess uh, I'll circle back that we didn't talk about before we wrap is... You know, one of the things I'm important really uh, that I really see with this is not just from a scaled production standpoint of me growing food for you in the city, but one of the things with stock cropper that I'm really passionate about is connecting people that maybe don't grow their own food now to be able to do so. Um, and so, uh, one of the things I've built in the last year is what a, a, a very small cluster cluck, you know, we call the cluster cluck pico, and it is for. Uh, backyard poultry. So uh, you can have your hens or your broiler production, or you could potentially put a couple pigs. And it's meant for instead of feeding the world, how about you just feed your family, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe learn how to process your own chickens uh, on a Saturday afternoon and grow your own meat, uh, you know, and, and feed your own family and get them to participate or dare I say, build community within your cul-de-sac and have people come together, you know, and, and work collectively on something like that. And I think, you know, what's important about regenerative agriculture is that you need to have regenerative consumption uh, at the, at the same point. And so, you know, consumers really need to understand uh, that they can be maybe part of the food. If you're really worried about the carbon footprint, you, a lot of people have enough land to, to you know, to raise uh, stuff if you have the ordinances and, and things in place. And so that's, uh, there's a couple different lanes that I see us developing things for and trying to connect people closer to uh, their own food if they're passionate about those things. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because I actually have a lot of listeners that either already have chickens or want to get chickens. I have so many friends. I mean, I have a girlfriend right now that's um, moving to Texas because she wants a bigger yard because she wants chickens. So a lot of people are starting to talk about this and, and wanting to at least produce their own food or some of it. So yeah, it's cool. And one of the things, you know, about having chickens, if, you know, and what 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 the value of what we've developed here is Chickens can be kind of a pain to have because if you if you just free range them, you let them out in your yard, uh, you can get a fox or a coyote. You live in Texas, come in and wipe you out. That's no fun. Uh, if you have a chicken tractor, you've got to be there to move it, you know, twice a day if you don't want your your lawn to get you know burned off or you want them to make sure they have. And so that's really we've we the devices that we're making are trying to make it easy so that you can still go to the lake for the weekend and you can have your cluster cluck app and see that your 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 birds are moving across the yard automatically uh, in autonomous mode and uh, you know they've got fresh grass and you don't it, it takes kind of some of those pain points and they're confined so we keep predators out a lot of the things that make growing your own protein hard we try to make easier. That's cool. I'm going to, when we get off this call, I'm going to text my friend and, and tell her to reach out to you because she's probably going to want that for her yard. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to ask you one more question because I ask all my guests this, and this is just a personal question. What are your health non-negotiables? So these are things that you do either daily, maybe weekly, just to prioritize your own health, the things that are most important to you. 
What are the things that are most? Uh, I try to really minimize, uh, you know, process crap. Uh, that's that's probably the biggest thing. I'm on the go all the time. I'm really, really like a lot of people. I'm really uh, busy, but um, my wife helps me prioritize. She's a fan, fantastic uh, uh, cook and uh, makes makes great meals. Uh, you know, uh, you know, for me and and, and my daughters, and um, that's been um, that's been incredibly important uh, to to me and our family. And then, you know, the other thing is, I like raising all of my own protein, uh, which I do. Uh, been doing that for the last twelve years, and knowing where it comes from, and having a hand in that, uh, and then enjoying consuming that uh, in that process throughout uh, the entire year. Um, uh, I wish I could say that exercise uh, is. Uh, a daily routine for me. It's not, uh, my wife was just telling me I need to get back on the P90X now that it's winter time, but being a farmer, uh, it's a fairly physical uh, job and I'm, I'm fairly physically active, but I could, uh, for sure do better at that. But, uh, yeah, that would be, uh, those would be my things. I love it. That's great. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. This has been a really great episode. I really enjoyed this a lot. I think my listeners are going to love it. And um, I just want to encourage everyone listening to go check out all of his stuff, everything he plugged. So we'll put it all in the show notes too. So thank you so much, Zach. Yeah. And I would say back to you, thanks for having me. And you, uh, you'd be more than welcome anytime to come out to Iowa. And I'd love to, uh, to give you a tour and and show you what it's all about at any point. So, or see the stock proper system next summer. That'd be great. I'm going to take you up on that for real. So I will reach out to you. I would love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Real Foodology Podcast. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in your podcast app to let me know. This is a resonant media production produced by Drake Peterson and edited by Mike Fry. The theme song is called Heaven by the amazing singer Georgie. Georgie is spelled with a J. For more amazing podcasts produced by my team, go to resonantmediagroup.com. I love you guys so much. See you next week. The content of this show is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical and mental health advice and doesn't constitute a provider-patient relationship. I am a nutritionist, but I am not your nutritionist. As always, talk to your doctor or your health team first.